time has come to retool our playing for ourselves, for our students, and for the greater groove. And the big question remains, of course, what is the future of strings? Come on, let's talk about it. It's Tracy Silverman. Welcome to the podcast for the greater groove, the future of strings. And I've got my old friend Renata Brat on the show today, cellist extraordinaire, a wonderful educator, and quite an impressive author with books on Mel Bay, on Alfred. If you just go to Amazon and Google Renata Brat, you will find a plethora of wonderful materials, arrangements, uh, and original pieces for string orchestra and string groups. She's got a book called The Modern Cello Method, The Fiddling Cellist, Cello Chords, Rhythms, and Backups for Fiddle Tunes, which is a really amazing resource that I was just looking at recently. Celtic Grooves, lots of lots of other books. It's really an, an uh, oppressive catalog of material. Um, she is an artist in the schools at the Kumbwa Jazz Center in Santa Cruz area. And she is my guest today on the podcast. So good to see you, Renata. Great to see you, Tracy. It's been a while. <laughs> we haven't seen each other in the flesh for, I think, a year, and uh, maybe two years. Yes, yeah. I think so. Yes. Uh, Asta of what 2019, I think. So Asta is the place. The American String Teacher Association Conference is a place where so many of us get together every year. It's usually in March, uh, and of course, last year um, it was canceled. This last year, the year before was right on the edge. Most of us probably shouldn't have been there had we known what was coming, because the following week the entire world shut down. That's but. right. That was bad. Yeah, but that was the last I saw you and many of my friends in the uh, string world. So it's great to reconnect. And and we're going to dig into some cello stuff today. We're going to hear from the cello perspective, and in particular, how you achieve the remarkable backup cello techniques that you do and that you have written about. So um, I'd like you to... to um, to uh, inform our listeners a little bit about how you how you got on that track because that's not your typical cello track when you you know when you're learning cello they don't really tell you how to back up fiddle players um, well they don't tell you how to do that on the violin or the viola either so that's, that's not surprising um, I grew up uh, extremely classically. Um, my dad loved classical music, and um, I was fortunate to grow up in the Los Angeles, greater Los Angeles area, so I could see the L.A. Philharmonic play, and I saw Jacqueline Dupre play, actually, with the Philharmonic. Wow. And, um, but my dad also liked, um, he, he liked musicals from the 30s and 40s, which meant tap dancing. So ah. um, I learned uh, about groove in my own body by being in musicals. So because I was in musicals as a youngster, 
I could do, I had a, a real good sense of rhythm because you can't tap dance without uh, <laughs> knowing yeah. how to uh, groove a little bit. So um, I was always able to play like Bach very, or any Baroque tunes um, extremely uh, steadily because I was used to this steady idea. Um, Interesting. I originally wanted to be a Hollywood um, studio player. So that was my life goal. Um, and so I became an extremely good sight reader um, mm. because it, if you can't sight read material, you can't uh, be uh, playing for uh, movie tracks. And um, and I did everything you're supposed to do. I I was in the Pasadena Symphony. I was ready to go. I had everything together. And then I uh, went down to UC San Diego, and realized that I was allergic to smog. Oh. So uh, it wasn't going to be so good there. And when I was at UC San Diego, which is where I uh, picked up a PhD, um, we were. Uh, uh, we were looking at uh, different kinds of things that would could come down to play in uh, our school um, at the music department. And one of the people that we were looking at was uh, Turtle Island String Quartet. So I got to go and hear them at the Royce Hall at UCLA yep. um, way back in the day. And, um, and I was uh, amazed really had no idea that you could do that kind of thing on the cello. I didn't know you could um, do jazz on the cello, no idea. And so um, it was really Mark Summer that made me think that you could do all these different kinds of musics. So I immediately uh, started uh, learning how to do bass music with a bass teacher in San Diego and uh, learned how to do bass tracks, um, you know, so lines. So I could do that very well. And uh, that's why I went to see the Turtle Island um, do their workshop at Stanford, which is the, the very mm -hmm. first thing where they started teaching people how to do this. And I didn't know that Mark wasn't, I didn't know that he was not doing the chop. And um, so I learned how to chop, actually, Jeremy Cohen was in the group for two seconds right then. And uh -huh. he taught me how to chop on the cello. And then when Laura Risk was doing um, her interesting uh, paper about how the chop traveled, I. I, she said I was the first cellist that she could find who learned how to chop. Wow. And I was like, what are you talking about? Because Mark wasn't chopping, was why would he? Somebody's got to be a, the there there. And everybody around him was chopping up like crazy. And right. so uh, Mark was doing all this amazing finger tap stuff, you know, uh, you know, all the stuff where he's just, uh, I can't even do it. He's just, he's doing all this stuff here. Yep, a lot of slapping that stuff and yep. I, I didn't know that so I just learned how to chop um, so that was lucky for me because chopping on um, the cello uh, makes it so that you can learn how to um, 
how to string cross extremely rapidly because the chop on the cello is, uh, uh, for us, it's a very normal type of uh, bow hold. And on the violin, you have to take your thumb and make it straight and and it's going away from you in a in a strange manner but on mm -hmm. the cello we're already going away from us in a strange manner uh, if you're a violinist so uh, we're already uh, <laughs> having uh, our uh, both of the cello and the violin have the wood going towards of the bow going towards the scroll but for the cello that means that that we're going opposite from our bow right. hold goes opposite from the violin bow hold. Interesting. So that's I, I didn't, an I didn't... easy way for us to, to uh, approach the chop because it means that our regular set is the beginning of chop. Yeah. So for a cellist, uh, our, all the things that we do on the strings can be found in a chop. And so you actually get better as a player if you can chop. It's not it, it's not an, an unnatural to the cello type of event. Yeah, interesting. So I actually have taught um, bass players how to chop because anybody can make their string stop moving. That's all it is. You're just making that string stop moving. And uh, I have found, uh, since I learned how to chop early, that the best way for me to, do, to learn more kinds of chops is to immediately teach it. So, for instance, um, one time Daryl Anger asked me to help him uh, do a chop workshop at the American String Teachers Association conference. So he was talking about doing a um, uh, jig chop, and I could not uh -huh. do it. He came over to my house, could not do that at all. And I was like practically crying as one does when one can't do things. And I uh, said to him, um, I don't think cellists can do this. And then I taught other people to do it immediately. So that was the very first thing I did, as I taught other people to do, you know. Which is the jig chop. One, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, which is ridiculously hard if you're trained uh, a different way, I thought. <laughs> Interesting that you're doing that starting on a down bow and doing I like two not. ups. Oh, it looked like a down bow. Up, up, down, up, 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 oh, down. Oh, okay, good, yeah. Just like you. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I've been working on uh, different ways of uh, accompanying um, using chop and uh, other things since that first uh, time that I was at the Stanford workshop. And I was lucky enough to go to uh, Boston for a year and a half. I was t um, my husband had work out there. And uh, so we moved for a year and a half to Massachusetts. And I took lessons with folks at Berkeley. And uh, one uh, person there, Dave Hollander, was very interested in um, what the cello could do. He's a, he's a bass player, and uh, I always think you should take um, improv lessons from people that are one string down from you, because they don't go <laughs> so fast. You know, people, 
people can really overwhelm you with how quickly they're playing if you're a cellist. And it's great to learn from a bass player. And the same thing with <laughs> violinists. They, they should learn from cellists because then you're, you're not being overwhelmed with too much information, I think, uh, which happens all the time. So he was very interested in uh, th that I could learn how to do uh, chords. So I learned these bar chords just from uh, listening to... various uh, jazz arrangements. So I was lucky to have him be interested in what could happen. So he just said, well, why don't you try it? Just try it. So I... So I did. And the great thing about um, chords, as you know, is that as soon as you start playing chords, if you just stay on one chord, then you can start um, making melodies in your head. And as soon as you start making melody in your head, you're composing. And you don't have to go to the piano to do that thing. Mm -hmm. So uh, learning to play a chord, which um, on the cello uh, sounds pretty great. A bar chord um, on the cello is when you just have your first finger on the, I call this a root position chord. You would just have mm -hmm. your first finger on the name of the chord, say I'm on a, the name is D, and then I would take my next finger, I would keep that bar over, and I'd have the fifth of the chord, mm -hmm. and um, of course chords are made up of at least three notes usually, um, they could have four, they could have five, I can't do that many on the cello, uh, this cello, and so our chords are always going to be the root skip a note, the third, skip a note, and the fifth. And we could skip another note and have a seventh on there. But on the cello and on all, all uh, strings tuned in fifths, um, we can play a third, but it's a lot easier for us to grab the fifth and put the third on the top, which is really a tenth. So a nice major third up there. Yeah, break, break that chord for us so we hear it. the cello we can also you can see that I've already got my other finger down to make um, the seventh of that chord which is the D7 is um, C that. so I tend to already be ready for that if I want it to be there so mm -hmm. at that point you can say to yourself I make a minor chord and that on the cello we're just going to go one one two minor, one one three for a major and we just keep moving on up it's very easy because on the cello we're used to moving around uh, we can't stay in one place like on the violin. On the violin, right. uh, you can stay in one place and play millions and millions of uh, tunes, and we can't. So we're used to moving, and uh, yeah. when we move, we can really play around with our chord structures on the cello. It's nice. A great thing. Nice. 
let me ask you a question on a slightly different subject, and that is you're demonstrating all of this pits, pizzicato. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what percentage of the time would you say when you're backing up somebody, um, are you doing that pits, and when are you using the bow, and how are they different for you? Um, if I, lately, I've had to do everything outside um, because uh, that's the way it goes. And um, when I'm outside, I never play anything pizzicato because it goes uh, it just doesn't go anywhere. And so yeah. I do everything um, with a bow. And even even when I'm just walking a line. <laughs> Much louder with a bow when you're outside um, and I do the same thing even though you I really think you've got to learn how to how to play with fingers pizzicato all of your chords have to start that way because you can't really hear them this way you can't hear the whole thing I can only grab two at once right. so most of the time I'm playing uh, with my bow. Now, if I'm playing with someone who's playing a bass part, that relieves me of the responsibility of having to play the one of the chord. So I enjoy it very much not having to play the one of the chord and just being up here and playing, you know, like the, the third and the seventh if I want. or look at me play it looks like I'm moving down towards uh, when I do this big chop which mm-hmm. um, uh, is now being represented by uh, a, a, a slanted line by uh, Mr. Dreesen and others um, but I still make an X because I can't understand what's happening with the line um, <laughs> when it looks like I'm doing that, what I'm actually doing is I'm taking my bow in my hand and I'm making the bow tip go up towards the scroll. So my bow uh-huh. tip is going towards my scroll. And notice, uh, if you do that yourself or if you're looking at me, uh, you would notice that it, it, it looks like I'm now playing on the way down on the bridge, which I am towards the bridge. I'm going towards the bridge. And I'm, I am doing that a little bit, but the greater thing that's happening is that my fingers are moving this way. So this action ends up being something that uh, is extremely good on the cello because it's this action of having your first finger come towards you uh, for the top string, which is the A string on the cello, or your little finger come towards you for the bottom string on, which is the C string on the cello, causes you to be able to play quickly and easily across all strings. So. Which is a kind of thing that you do in concertos all the time. 
Right. So it, it's actually an advanced technique to be able to do this. And the more that you work on this chop action, the more you'll be able to do this advanced technique. Now, yeah. it all really comes from being able to do a set. So if you can do a set, set down and up, down, up, down, up. That, uh, that you've coined. <laughs> I can't remember what it is. So down, up, down, up. If you do this, this strumming, down, up, down, up, bow strumming, not only will you be working on the chop, but you'll be working on, you'll be working on your very, very good um, Rhythm one and two and three and four and which you can't get as well when you're doing this. This can go terribly wrong with especially with string players because we we can play funny and yeah. and it'll sound great but it'll be completely wrong rhythmically. So that is not a good thing to do. So um, all the things come from the strumming. Um, I was once at the Mark O'Connor camp, um, he called it a string conference in San Diego, and um, I was teaching there with Rushad Eggleston, and I went into a room where I was going to teach probably some kind of jazz style, and he had just been teaching chopping, um, and uh, there were three blackboards set up there in that room. I think it was like a, it was not a music room but it had three blackboards on uh, the three walls, one, two, and three. And on all three walls, all the way around, was the musical symbols for down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, <laughs> all the way around without, I mean, and I just went in there and I went, ah, I know what he was doing. But I mean, can you imagine being in that room when he was doing that? <laughs> Reminds me of that. That scene from The Shining where she walks up to the stack of paper and he's written, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy like a thousand times. Right. How long would that take? <laughs> all the way around. Well, you know, it's an interesting point. Um, you know, as as you know, I have this book called Strum Boeing and I sort of um, started teaching this shortly after Turtle Island stuff um, and, and trying to find a way to to make it easy for string players. But this idea of strumming with your bow is not something that I invented. I just am tr tried to make that a sort of um, focal point, you know, uh, as a way to, uh, as a way in, as an entry point to a lot of string players, a simple way to get it. But all of the players who I learned from, like Daryl, uh, Mark, um, and and all the people who f who also uh, uh, learned from them, like Rashad and yourself and stuff, we all learned from them because that's what they were doing, and we picked it up. Um, and and what they are doing is physicalizing the subdivision. That's what it has. That's technically what's happening. That's what a strum is. Um, and guitar players have been doing it for a long time because it's a chordal instrument. And this is the big 
paradigm shift that I have noticed and which I'm trying to foster uh, among string players is this shift from being a strictly melodic instrument to a chordal instrument that is capable of backing up someone else, being a support player rather than the lead voice, the melodic voice, being that that voice in the background that's just um, uh, providing a rhythmic harmonic background for backup for for the soloist. And this is, it, it's not actually new to strings because we were doing this back in the Baroque period and, and throughout history, you know, composers have used it all the time, you know, uh, and every string quartet is full of viola and violin two parts and every uh, symphony there, you know, where they're going jacky, 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 or bop, 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 whatever, you know, they're doing rhythmic backups, but somehow it didn't translate over to the tw in the 20th century to our popular musical culture. Guitars kind of took that role away from strings or strings just kind of bowed out of out of it. I don't think that I don't think they bowed out um, willingly. I think um, yeah. I mean part of it what it is that it was just darn hard to uh, to 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 make <laughs> to make a string stop reverberating inside, and so uh -huh. you, you simply couldn't uh, mic it. So uh, even the first guitars had problems with that. That's why they went to solid body. Um, and cellos are terrible. They just pick everything up. And um, so miking was awful. And if it's not, if, if our string instruments aren't miked, we can't get past a saxophone. Yes. We simply yep. can't. And so the saxes uh, took over. Um, and you, as you know, there were string bands to start with. Uh, everybody played strings. It was just a thing that you did. I mean, if you go and look at um, any of the New Orleans stuff in the old, older or New Orleans bands, there was a violinist in every band. I mean, there's yeah. still, I think it was really a miking problem. Not interesting. It, it didn't fall out of favor, but you couldn't use it because they just didn't mic it correctly. I think that that's very true. And you know, uh, in my conversation with Mimi uh, a few weeks ago, um, she brought out this idea, and tell me what you what you think of this. This idea that that playing rhythm was sort of uh, may have been looked down upon in more elite classical circles for string players. That it was it seemed. Um, somehow vulgar to be bringing out the rhythmic aspects of things rather than the virtuosic aspects. And she even um, um, put forth the idea that maybe there's a certain racism involved with that, um, associating this rhythmic quality with music from Africa. And that American folk music, uh, popular music like jazz and rock, um, Classical players weren't interested in getting involved with that. They felt that it was that um, that music was beneath them altogether. There's certainly a strain of that in a lot of conservatories. What, what do you think about There's that? There's definitely a strain of that. Um, I have to say though that um, in Scotland, uh, because the principal dance instrument uh, in the 19th century was um, so the 
1800s, around then, they, they actually went through a burning of violins because anytime that you have people dancing together, it uh, could be devil's work uh, going to happen and uh, we can't have that. And so there was definitely a great burning in Scotland of violins. Um, As so, the instigator of this rhythmic... Yes. Um, so it's not just, <laughs> you know, it's whoever is doing the rhythm that's yes. going to get in trouble at some point. Um, Interesting, yeah. So more of a religious thing, you think, than a racial thing. Well... Interesting. I didn't consider that. It certainly can be. Um, yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and um, that, you know, that's a, a story that Alistair Fraser talks about quite a bit, Uh and, Interesting. And yeah, Scot well, because of the Scottish history. Yeah. yeah. Um, the other, yes, there's an aspect of um, upper classness to string playing, and um, and the idea that uh, the main thing that we want from this these instruments of ours is beautiful tone. Right. Nothing else. Just beautiful tone. So uh, and. I did notice that when I was playing weddings, um, and anything that I could do to make money, if I went into large, beautiful houses, I never went in the back door. Never in my life because I played a, a cello. So other people in my band might not get in the front door, but no one looked <laughs> twice at me, ever, huh. always. Interesting. Whereas so, the drummer had to go in the back door, oh, you're saying. Oh, yeah. So, uh, you know, whatever race they were, I mean, a nice white lady on the cello is going to go in the front door because my daughter is learning the cello. Or, you know, oh, my goodness. It is very much a class-type class instrument. Yeah, um, yeah. And I hope that this changes uh, back to that everybody can play these instruments. Certainly the violin yeah. is uh, easier to haul around. The cello is pretty silly, but so is the bass, so. <laughs> cool. Well, you know, um, we were going to groove hack something today. I wonder if um, if you want to dig into that a little bit and get into that um, um, James Brown tune you were oh, yeah. um, talking about. I got you. I feel good. Yeah, that's a good tune. So the idea of this groove hacks segment is uh, for our string playing audience members to get an idea of how does Renata do this? How does she take a cool funky tune like I feel good and somehow create it create that groove on the cello. Now obviously you know, we're not going to sound like a band. We wouldn't sound like the band if we were a guitar player either. Uh, we're just reducing it down to one instrument and trying to recreate that groove in some way or a piece of the groove um, uh, on, on strings. But the point being that it's not Mozart, it's James Brown, and it's the groove and not the melody. Okay. The groove and not the melody. So first we have to listen to it a little bit, I think. That yes. would be a good first step. So um, let's see. Uh, 
Um, so yeah, there it is. Um, and minus the ow at the beginning, which is kind of the best part. Um, let's, uh, I'm re real curious how, how you break that down on the cello. What, and, and, you know, this is really a matter of prioritizing, a matter of, of selecting what part of the song, because we have to leave most of the song out. So we have to choose what is it that we're going to well, first of all, I'd like to know how fast I'm going to go. So I think this is about 140 to start with. It, though it, uh, he, they were clearly not using a metronome or any kind of a device on this particular recording, or probably ever. And so yeah. it does vary quite a bit. Uh, but at the beginning, I think it's at about 140. So if we're at 140... Now, what did I just do? I figured out how fast it was, and then, because I know how it goes, I sang it with my metronome. It, and you sang the bass line. Bass line, because that is the grooviest thing that's occurring, except for this other thing, which is, the other thing which we hear very, very clearly is the part where it's going, it's doing this. So we hear this off one, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two. So we want to maybe incorporate that as some part some part of our groove. That's the drum. The backbeat. The backbeat. Now, we'd already talked about this D7 chord. They're not doing this exactly, obviously. thing is that this is an earlier uh, James Brown tune and it's a blues based tune it's actually a 12 bar blues right. and so uh, it uses uh, three chords D which is our one chord a D7 because D7 is what we use in the blues and then we're going to go to a G7 and that is D E, F, G, that's our four chord. And then back to the D. And then a very standard blues progression um, in uh, 9, 10, 11, 12 measures. It's going to be the five chord, which in this case is A, which is great for strings. This is a really fun tune to play because it's in the key of D. Um, we're going to have our five chord, which is... Then we're going to go to our four chord, G, 
and then back to the D. Now, then I would do this part. Which we already learned and sang with our metronome. Now, if you don't uh, do it with your metronome, then bad things might occur. Because as a backup instrumental player, um, you should think of yourself as uh, kind of like a doctor and your first rule is do no harm. No harm. <laughs> I yes. can't tell you how many times I have I have said that. Oh my goodness. It is so true. <laughs> because um, most people, when they learn how to chop, they'll chop all the time. And the chop, because they don't ever use a metronome, um, and they don't want to use a metronome because it's hard. Uh, sounds... It's a complete groove wrecker. So you have to use a metronome at first, all the time. And you have to use it with your voice first. You can't just put it, uh, in my opinion, you can't just use your instrument. Uh, because the first thing that we do when we start to play with our instrument is uh, listen to the instrument and not um, the actual metronome. So learning to do stuff with your voice uh, it is almost imperative, I think. So you really yes. want to be going boom, chica, chica, boom, chica, chica, with your metronome. So I always have a metronome with me. So boom, chica, chica, 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 boom, chica. If you can't do that with your metronome and your voice, you're not going to be able to right. do it. Exactly. With your instrument. Exactly. I'm a huge believer in that. I, I agree with you a thousand percent on that. I, uh, I, I have this sort of motto, if you can say it, you can play it, uh, you know, which is often true. Um, <laughs> but it doesn't mean you can play it. But if, but if you don't say it, you probably won't be able to play it. Um, and the idea is that you get it with your voice. It's uh, a different cognitive process, very different thing is happening with the brain when you are using your voice and when you're not. Um, it just makes makes what you are uh, saying more specific. You have to be specific in order to say it out loud. You can't say words without having actual words to say. So you have to pre-think somewhat. Whereas on our instruments, Oddly enough, we can sort of wander around with no idea where we're going sometimes. Um, Very true. 
And, uh, <laughs> you know, a, as we are better on our instruments, uh, the more that we don't know, we don't do that as much. And then when our, our students are doing it, we're just like, hmm, very interesting idea there. Uh, but it's, we all went through it as that's the weird thing. And, and I often find myself apologizing for looking like I'm not doing very much. Apologizing to students or apologizing to teachers that I'm training um, to do this because it looks like we're not doing anything but we're actually, we've already learned how to do all these little bits of things. So uh, what looks easy is never easy on, the, yeah. on our instruments. It just isn't. It, uh, uh, someone who's worked a lot at the thing will make it look easy, but yeah. it's not easy. And it's especially difficult for classical players uh, and you are a classically trained cellist. Mm -hmm. So you you had a second, uh, a whole second career of learning, of going back to school after you finished your classical training, or maybe it was happening at the same time, where you had to learn these other skills that were not really taught to you in the conservatory. Um, the things that you're doing right now, the singing, first of all, um, I mean, my, my teachers used to tell me to sing my lines, you know, to be melodic and sing out to the back seats of the, of the you know, concert hall. Um, and now I'm often um, telling my students to not, to, to do a lot of the opposite things that my classical teachers were telling me. Don't try to play loud. Uh, try to you know play softer because you can be more rhythmically precise. But you when can you use because less bow. so you don't play loudly because you are able to be miked. Yes, that's right. a big difference. You're, we're not trying to fill up a hall. Right. You have and to play I, loud if you're trying to I, fill up a hall. Yeah, and I learned this from watching Daryl Anger on stage, and when I first joined Turtle Island. Uh, it was just fascinating to, for me, a classical Juilliard guy, to see how little bow he was using. Um, and at first I thought, oh, geez, you know, Mr. Galamian wouldn't like that. Um, but then I realized that he was able to do a certain kind of precision, rhythmic precision, uh, improvised and not worked out and studied and, and practiced and drilled with a metronome, you know, like in a classical passage work. He was doing this stuff on the fly, super fast. Like, you know, of course, that famous intro to the solo on um, Night in Tunisia where he just, you know, does that. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, which I, I've, I've used it in these podcasts already as an example of people, if uh, people have listened to it, they know what I'm talking about. Um, but that precision was only possible because he was using very little bow. And uh, so there are all these little differences that the classical training that we have had are actually sort of obstacles. Because if you, if you were properly taught by your teacher, those things are ingrained, they're muscle memory, they are your, uh, part of your practice of not you know, of how you play the instrument, part of your style and part of your whole um, technique. Uh, and it's very difficult to overcome some of those classical things and teach yourself to move rhythmically, which I was discouraged from doing. Um, I was encouraged to move in a uh, what I call the emotional grid, you know, 
get emotional and show show that you're emotion that's emotional by sort of moving around or by um, having sort of angry gestures when you're doing the angry emotion which basically class a lot of classical music string playing is reduced to either anger or passion um, or or just beauty where you don't really move um, and <laughs> you know and to get into this idea of just sort of dancing in place rhythmically in a more much more vulgar uh, rhythmic manner or God forbid um, you should tap Yes, exactly. Tap your foot. Um, Never tap your foot. So yeah, so there were there were a lot of those uh, those things to overcome, and this whole idea of of keeping time uh, with your instrument in a in a simple way, in a non virtuosic, non melodic way, to just go boom, and 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 provide a rhythmic grid for somebody else to 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 play on top of. Uh, I didn't have a clue how to do that coming out of school. Me neither. Nothing. Not at all. And um, I have found that if you are able to sit next to someone who's chopping, that is the best way of learning how to groove. I mean, I have been in a just complete dive bar situation with Daryl Anger. Uh, we were up at Hinflings, which is a total dive bar in uh, the Santa Cruz area and he was he was playing and he just let me come in and and I was just sitting next to him dinking around and um, that is how you really learn how to chop or how to groove is being with someone else it's the yep. easiest way that's you, how I learned that's how I learned now you can learn how to do it with your metronome also so the metronome is your big friend in this situation but sitting next to somebody is is the greatest thing because you can look over and you go, oh my gosh, they're not they're using this much bow and how is yeah. that possible? Yeah. You know, I had yeah. I was uh, I um when I first moved to this area I was playing with a a jazz flute player and uh, we had been introduced as only as me playing jazz he'd never heard me do anything else and so. Uh, he once hired me to do a uh, classical gig, and he said, "Is that okay? Can you do classical music?" And I'm like, yeah, I, could, "I could do that." And then, so I get there and I'm, I'm playing these classical charts, and he goes, "Wow, you play classical pretty good." And I, this is the highest praise I've ever had. He did not know that I did this other thing, and that was my first bag. Really, I'm so nice. So nice. Happy. So yeah, it's like. Your second language fooled him into thinking it was your first language, which is an interesting point that I like to make sometimes that for us string players, our second language is everybody else's first language. I know. Daryl once said to me, you did everything backwards. He just, you know, because <laughs> I went from classical to jazz to fiddling. And for him... You do fiddling, which is not that, you know, it's pretty easy to do um, the easier tunes. And then from that to jazz and then into classical. Interesting. So I thought that was an interesting concept also. <laughs> you know, it's all a matter of what, what you were first trained in, because for a lot of classical players, playing jazz or playing fiddle, fiddling is something they, they will possibly never sound authentic at. Because 
they can't lose their vibrato or they can't lose their tone production. Well, there's uh, nothing and... wrong with not sounding authentic at first. You know, um, mm-hmm. I, uh, I was really worried about that when um, I remember in like t- 2003, something like that, the first standalone ASTA conference. And uh, Liz Carroll was there and Bruce Molsky. <laughs> and, and Liz Carroll said to me, I always sound like I'm playing Irish music, whatever style I play. So it's okay for you to sound a little bit classical, whatever you play. So to have that accent is not, should not be a badge of shame. It's just the mm-hmm. way we speak. But we can sound over time more and more like that thing that we're trying for. But you, it yeah. shouldn't dissuade anybody from doing that. Right, right. Um, you true. just have to have, uh, as Andy Reiner and, uh, well, really, Daryl Anger said first, you have to give yourself permission to suck yeah. badly. Yeah. To be yes. terrible. And uh, cl- this is a very hard thing for classical musicians to do because yes. we're trained to be perfect. And um, we're so good at, like, you know, you can play Paganini, but you can't play a fiddle tune. How is that possible? You know, I mean, it's that's what we say to ourselves. I you know, know, it's like, I, I've been playing for 20 years. How, why am I struggling with this chop? You know, that should be easy for me. Uh, yeah, as if uh, every style isn't terribly difficult. Yeah. Or as if, you know, you get skills from classical and then every because it's so challenging, everything else should be easy. But it's like saying, I know English, so Spanish should be easy because English is more complicated or something. You know, it just doesn't really doesn't work that way. (laughs) No, it does not work that way. It's okay to suck. It is okay to suck. And speaking. Oh, boy. Of, of sucking. Being, of sucking and being perhaps failing at something. Um, that brings us right to our last segment of the show. My favorite segment of all, Not My Gig, where I try to stump my guests. And uh, so today, Renata, Kumbwa Jazz Center artist in the schools, we're going to ask you some questions about... Kumbaya, the song. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't see that coming. Oh, no. (laughs) Kumbaya. Kumbaya. Okay, so here we go. I did a little bit of research on this, and it was quite interesting. Though copyrighted in 1939 by Marvin V. Frey, a white evangelical minister who composed a number of well-known hymns, Come By Here, original title was Come By Here, was first recorded actually 13 years prior to that, turns out, uh, 1926 on a wax cylinder by Robert Winslow Gordon, who was the founder of what began as the Library of Congress's Archives of Folk Song and later became the American Folklife Center. The singer's name on this old recording from 1926 was H. Wiley. That's all we know about him. And my question to you, Renata, is in which state was the recording made? Was it recorded in Georgia, in South Carolina, or in Mississippi? South Carolina. 
That's a very good guess. That is an excellent guess because it actually comes from the Gullah Geechee um, uh, culture that down there, which is largely in South Carolina, but it's also in Georgia, and that's where it was recorded. Cool. So, and then that leads us to our second question. Get two out of three of these right, and you got two out of three right. Um, <laughs> Uh, okay, so uh, Dr. Griffin Lotson, federal commissioner of the Gullah Geechee Cultural Heritage Commission and the mayor pro tem of Darien, Georgia, which is where it was recorded, has spearheaded a successful effort to get the song recognized as the official state historical song of Georgia. The Georgia Senate passed a resolution on February of 2017 making Kumbaya the official state historical song. Not to be confused with the state song because Georgia on my mind is actually the state song. But this is Kumbaya's the state historical song, which was quite an important thing for the Gullah community to have that recognition. So my question to you is what is the state song of California? Is it A, I left my heart in San Francisco, B, I love you, California, or C, California, here I come. California, here I come. Also a great guess, but it's actually I love you, California. I love you, California. What is wrong with them? And li- and listen. When is just, this? Like, when did check this it happen? Out. Check out this tune, I Love You, California. I never heard it. I have never heard it either. And here I will play it for my for our listeners. But trust me, <laughs> I will edit it in here as I don't have it handy on my... Let me, well, here, let me see if I can get it because I'd love to have your reaction. Hang on, hang on, right there. Uh, this is not the version I heard. Let me see what it sounds like. My God, hang on. That's actually. I want to see. Just take a quick second here. Hang on. I'm gonna. There was a different version that was really better that I want to pull up here. The piccolo part. This is. <laughs> is that not the greatest? That's your state song, kiddo. Thanks. That is your state song. Don't blame me. All right. I had nothing to do with it. I'm just gonna stay with home in Pasadena. <laughs> there the grass is green <laughs> Greena, I love Greena. it. <laughs> All right, so here's your third and final question. And uh, I've just decided if you get this right, you get you win the whole shebang, okay? So this is this is key. The word kumbaya which started out as a plaintive spiritual plea 
calling on heaven for help and beseeching God to come by here and help, right, has come to have a new cynical meaning. It's been transformed into snarky shorthand for ridiculing a certain kind of idealism. Quote, if you say someone's engaged in kumbaya, you're saying that person isn't serious, said Thomas S. DeLuca, a political scientist at Fordham University in New York who studies political rhetoric. It's designed to disempower someone who's trying to do something. As it's often used in Congress about, we're not going to have any kumbaya moment here or something like that. Okay. This change of meaning of a word is known as which of these? A, semantic change, B, lexical shift, or C, neologism. Semantic change, lexical shift, or neologism. I'm just going to go with semantic change because I don't know what any of these words mean. Well, you are 100% correct. Semantic change is exactly the first thing that comes up if you Google, as I did, um, different me change of meaning of a word. Semantic shift is also known as a lexical shift or a neologism. So... Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, that's nice of you. Well, you know, because... Who the hell knows the state song of California for real? <laughs> Honestly, that was not the state song, I think, <laughs> when I learned state songs. But maybe, I love you, California. It's not possible that I couldn't have heard that if it was a state song when I was a child. I don't think I've ever heard that song ever, ever in my life. No. And I lived in California for a number of years. So. Yes. I've lived here a long, long time. But it is catchy. Yes. It is catchy and it might be, la, might be la, worth la, it might be worth covering. C A L I. Well, Renata, thank you so much for taking some of your very precious time to spend with us today and to demonstrate so clearly for us how you do what you do on the cello. That's awesome, really, really important because as a violin player, I, I know you guys do stuff down there. I know there's all kinds of different ways that you're doing stuff and that you have to shift differently and there's, you can't play the same chord frames that we can, but I don't know how. So it's really, really helpful to have someone who can show that to people uh, and really break it down so clearly as you have done in your books. And anybody, any of uh, listeners out there, if this is interesting to you and you'd like to get a little deeper into what Renata is doing, I highly recommend that cello chords, rhythms, and backups, um, but just about anything Renata has written is clear uh, and um, incredibly useful. So I highly recommend it. Thank well, you. Thank you. Thank you for being on the show, Renata. My and pleasure. I look, yeah. I look forward to seeing you at the next Asta, if not sooner. For sure. Yes. See you cool. soon. Great. Thanks again. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you want to stay in touch, please join the For the Greater Groove Facebook group. See ya.
groove on. <laughs> 